Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 2, and while you're turning there in your smartphone, your tablet, or the Bible that's in front of you, uh, first of all, thanks for opening your lives up. Thank you for welcoming Rob Wilton last week as he preached. Man, anybody, did anybody enjoy what Rob had to share last week? Um, yeah, he did a great job. And Rob is a good friend of mine, and I could not be more excited about Graceland partnering with Rob to plant a church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, we're really excited about what God is going to be able to do there. I got to speak at Palmyra. It was great to be there with them. But as we look at Judges chapter 2 today, what we're going to find is a few things. We're going to find a group of people that are struggling with this, this issue called vision creep. Would you say that with me? Vision creep, all right? You did a lot better in the first service. Let me just tell you, good job, okay? So vision creep is this thing where we take our eye off of the vision that God, or whatever the case is, the, the preferable future. And what we're going to find in Judges 2 is a people that have su suffering from that. But I suffer from vision creep as well. I, I, I'm not perfect whatsoever. Here's a good example of that. So uh, a few years ago, my uh, wife comes to me and she goes, right, we probably need to, to get a doghouse for our dog. Now, we have a dog. His name is Buck. He's nine. He's a chocolate lab. He's about 90 pounds. He's part of our family, and uh, Buck right now is chilling out probably on my bed while we're gone, okay? He's not allowed on my bed, but sometimes he gets up there. Anyways, the, the case was that my wife said, you, we need to build a doghouse just in case it rains, he's outside, etc. So I start shopping around for a, a doghouse for a 90-pound dog, and I thought, man, this is kind of expensive. I can build a doghouse for cheaper than $100, surely. So I, I download a, a blueprint online. I find the one I want, and I buy all the materials, and I begin to build the doghouse. And I start building it with precision. Everything is 90 degrees and all the corners, and everything is just perfect. Well, about halfway through, I begin to suffer from vision creep. I get a little bit comfortable. I get a little bit cocky, and I begin to go, eh, what if we add a little something here? What if we add a little something there? And before I know it, $150 later, <laughs> I've used twice the materials. I've built this monstrosity of a doghouse. Dog so my wife comes out, and I'm all proud. It's the first thing I've really ever built on my own. I'm like, what do you think? And she goes, right, it's great. But the only problem is this. Look at the entrance. And I went, oh. And what I had realized was is that my 90-pound chocolate lab, it was big enough, the doghouse, but the entrance was this small enough for a chihuahua. <laughs> It was this big. I'm not kidding you. And that dog used that doghouse one time because I had to literally force him into the doghouse. He never went back in. And we didn't move that doghouse. It stayed at the house uh, that we sold later on. Now, I tell you that story because it's easy to fall away and creep away from the blueprint that you've been given. And today marks the start of a new series we're calling It's Time. And it's time to refocus on the blueprint that our church has been given and we've been given for our journey. And, and here's where this church is going. We're going to transform our neighborhoods. We're going to transform the next generations and the nations for Jesus Christ. And today we're going to zero in on what it looks like to transform the next generation. The reason why is because we have an incredible opportunity. The opportunity that is in front of us is monumental. Today in America, 59% of all Generation Z... Generation Z is, are those born in the mid-1990s to the mid-2000s are something other than Christian. Let that sink in a minute. The majority of the upcoming generation are something other than Christian. And what an opportunity we have in this critical juncture. It's time for us to seize the moment, for all of us in this place, young and old alike, 
to do that. You know, it, it reminds me of the prophet Joel, where he would say that the, the young are going, to dr- are going to have visions and fresh vision for how things are going to get accomplished. We're going to need that. And how he, later he would say that the old are going to dream dreams of purpose, and we're going to need that. You see, I, I'm not a young guy. All the young people are like, you're not. You're not cool, all right? You all would agree with that. But then the older generation is like, hold on there, boy. You're not old either, right? I'm kind of in the middle. It's going to take the young. It's going to take the old. It's going to take the middle, all of us, to see this accomplished. And so my prayer is that God would fan into flame what he wants to accomplish in the next generation in us and through us and into the next generation, So let's look at Judges chapter 2, verses 6 and following. We're going to walk through this together. Okay, Judges chapter 2, verse 6 said, After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. Now, what's going on? What's going on is that Joshua had brought Israel into this land that had been promised to them for hundreds and hundreds of years. They uh, They hadn't taken over all of it, but they've taken over a lot of it. They're becoming comfortable they're living into the blessing that God had given them in their life. And then Joshua is on his deathbed. And, the, and, and because Joshua is on his deathbed and the people are comfortable, they begin to wander. And so God sends a heavenly messenger, an angel, because of what, that's what the Bible says. And, and the angel says, look, be warned. You need to return back to me. And so the, the nation, uh, in their heart of hearts, begin to turn back to God. And Joshua continues to lead them, and he dismisses them to the land where they were supposed to live. Look at it with me. It says, They went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. Then we read, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua, and of the elders who outlived them, and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Verse 8, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Now, there's a phrase that you hear there, the title of Joshua, the servant of the Lord. There's a lot of titles that you could pursue in your life. But I would argue the best title that you could ever pursue in your life is servant of the Lord. Some of the greatest men and leaders of the entire Bible, the likes of Moses, the likes of David, they were given the title servant of the Lord. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. And they buried him, Joshua, in the land of his inheritance. Verse 10. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now, I want you to stop there for a moment and kind of just take a glimpse and, 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 and check out the landscape of what we just read. So Joshua passes away. And after Joshua passes away, 30 to 90 years go by. And between the, the years of 30 and 90 years, we see an unbelievable landscape that changes. The history of Israel, begin, the pages begin to turn, and we see quite a change. So if we could, using this graph, I'm going to help you understand a little more. The era that we just read about was that of Joshua. And Joshua, the characteristic of his leadership in his era was is that God would do miracles, does. I have teachers here, does miracles. I wanna make sure I get it right. And because Joshua led and God does miracles, Israel's response is, is that they serve him. They serve God. Well, then another era comes, another page of history is turned. And now these are the surviving witnesses 
surviving witnesses of Joshua, and they remember, they have memory of God's miracles. And because of this, they serve God. And then another era comes about, and another page of history is turned, and now these are the next generation of the surviving witnesses. They have no memory of what took place earlier. And because of that, they do not serve. Between 30 and 90 years, you have an unbelievable change in landscape. And what's amazing is for Joshua to, to feel so good about his leaders and following after the God, and then those leaders growing old. And as they grow old, then they look back, and the next generation following them, the wheels have fallen off. So the nation falls into idolatry in verse 11. Look at it with me. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed, the worship, they followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and Ashtoreth. Now they, they worship these two gods, these false gods named Baal and Ashtoreth. These are the gods of the weather, which probably would have been pretty nice to worship a made-up god who would bring rain to an area that was desert. And the other one was a fertility god, and it would have been pretty good and pretty fun to worship that god, for, at least for a season, because she was known as the god of sex and love. And so obviously we know how enticing all of that is. And in fact, a little history for you, this god, Ashtoreth, um, as I did a little bit of research, uh, temple practice many times would involve sex with a priestess and a prostitute at the same time. So obviously there was some enticement there. But I, I was thinking about that and I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around the fact, why would they make such a poor trade? Well, the trade took place because so often the case that uh, a God that we can get our heads around, a God that our infinite or our finite uh, understanding can wrap our heads around is a lot better than a God that we can't control, that we don't often understand. And that's probably why they did what they did. And the Bible says they worshiped these gods. Literally in the Hebrew language, it means that they got so intimate with these gods. They bowed down, they worshiped this God and the bottom's fallen out. You, there you have Joshua on one side doing so well with the people and the next moment, 30 to 90 years later, the bottom's fallen out and they're completely distracted. And their situation is so wonderfully communicated in verse 13 when it says, they forsook him. So God responds in verse 14. Look at it with me. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they <clears throat> were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. So you read that, and they're facing all these scavengers and plunders, plunderers, and, and they're basically getting taken advantage of now, and they're helpless in their defense because they've wandered away from God. And you think, that doesn't seem like a very kind, gracious, and loving God. In fact, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. You brought here because of some reason someone took you by the ear and said, you're going to church. And you're like, that's the reason why I don't go to church. That's the reason why I don't read the Bible right there. 
Well, you got to understand the history. All right, let's rewind the tapes. Deuteronomy 28, God makes a very clear promise to Israel. He says, look, I will protect you, but you've got to do what I need you to do. Why? Because this is the best way for you. And I'll supernaturally provide for you. Well, they choose not to go his way. They do it their own way. And God says, okay, you're on your own. And what happens is what we just read. Now, however, we, on the other hand, we're under the promise of a new covenant, a greater covenant. And that covenant and promise is a one of grace, that God will pursue you, that God will give his grace to you, that he extend his favor towards you. And he always extends his, his righteousness to you based upon your faith in Jesus, not, upon, not based upon your works, not based upon who you, who, who you confess things to, but based upon your trust and faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, when you sin, when you choose to go your own way, that's not God's hand moving against you. What that is, is that's just you just going on your own and getting the sin and the consequences that we have chosen to do, according to Jude chapter 21. But we look at the totality of the scripture and we look at it and we look at the huge dramatic um, roller coaster that Israel had. And what I, what I want to point you to is the fact that they had come from a miraculous point in their life and experienced all these highs to now they're experiencing lowest of lows. And why in the world do they experience that? Well, it's because of the fact it has everything to do with a clanking sound of a baton being dropped. Let me explain. The U.S. Olympic relay team, the men and women, We've had a long, long, long tradition of winning and being successful in relay races. We have some of the fastest men and women in the world. We're blessed with the greatest resources on the earth, and we have coaches to boot. And so we have dominated many of the Olympic, the Summer Olympics with gold medals. In the 1996 Summer Olympics, we were destined for gold. The fastest runners in the world were on the team. The relay team was set to conquer and then what happened next was they would have to settle for much less because of a botched exchange with the baton. You see, a relay race is so important in one simple fact, and that is that the baton is everything. Think about it with me. It doesn't matter how fast you run. If you, if you don't exchange the baton properly, well then, hey, you're out, right? If you don't pass a baton from one teammate to the next properly, it doesn't matter how well you do everything else, you're done. And so I began to think about this a little bit in, in, in correlation to what we just read in Israel. And I began to think, are there any similarities? And I began to see a lot of similarities. So what I want to do through my research, I want to point you to three specific things that I learned about the Olympic uh, team not doing well and passing the baton and how this relates to Israel. So follow along with me. The first thing that I learned in my research is about the U.S. Olympic relay team is there are no autopilots for the 20-meter zone. Now, what does that mean? Okay, the 20-meter zone is an area in the race, in the relay race, where you can pass the baton. Anywhere before that or after that is known as the dead zone. The dead zone is aptly named. If you pass the baton in the dead zone, you are yeah, dead. Good job. You're following along. Okay. Well, they had taken advantage of this and the fact that they just thought, oh, it's autopilot. Of course, we'll exchange the baton. Of course, we can do that. We're the greatest athletes in the world. It's automatic. They lost focus and vision, vision creep. And that's exactly what happens to the people of Israel. In verse eight, 
We see, if you want to look back, we see Joshua, who was an important person to the people of Israel. Joshua, one of the greatest and mightiest of warriors, one of the greatest generals. He had led them in successful uh, victory, and he led them in campaigns like that of Jericho. And we see that he keeps them on vision and mission. He sees uh, leading them through all these miracles. But Joshua dies, and the people quickly take advantage of the baton passing, think it'll happen in the 20 meter zone, and they lose vision and purpose, and the baton is dropped. Dr. Billy Graham, before he, was pass he passed away, you know that Dr. Billy Graham uh, spoke to more people live than anyone in the history of mankind. He was going to be honored for that award, and so his old high school class said, Dr. Billy Graham, we'd love for you to come to our class reunion and we'd all have a good time together and we'd love to honor you. He said, well, I have a, a really, really bad case of Parkinson's and if it doesn't flare up, I'll try to be there. Well, it doesn't and he's able to go to the reunion and together they have an unbelievable time. They shed tears and uh, they have, make a bunch of uh, fun of each other and obviously there's the stories that are told of you know, class reunions and finally they bring out this plaque to honor Dr. Billy Graham and they all stand and they applause Dr. Billy Graham for all that he's accomplished and that humble servant of God, he steps up to the podium and he asks, can I say a few things? And of course they let him do it. And he steps up to the podium and he begins. In Princeton, New Jersey, Dr. Albert Einstein stepped on a train car. He sat down in the train car and as he sat down, he began to hear the conductor say, tickets please, tickets please. And as the conductor comes to the aisle where Dr. Albert Einstein is seated, the conductor says, tickets, please. And Dr. Albert Einstein all of a sudden realizes he can't find his ticket anywhere. And he looks into his briefcase and everything. And then the conductor says, Dr. Einstein, it's you. Oh, we know who you are. It's okay. You don't need a ticket. You're fine. Dr. Einstein continues to look for his ticket, but the conductor just continues to walk. He's tickets, please, tickets, please, tickets, please. And then as the conductor is walking down, he hears some wrestling and he sees Dr. Einstein is now underneath of his seat looking for his ticket that he may have dropped on the ground underneath of his seat. So he backs up and he says, Dr. Einstein, I told you, we know who you are. There's no need for you to have a ticket. And Dr. Einstein, he kind of sits back up in his seat and he says, sir, I know who I am. I just don't know where I'm going. <laughs> and the reason I share that with you is that we have got to know where we're going. We have got to keep in mind the vision and mission that we have before us. You see, we can't take for granted that the baton is going to be passed. There is no autopilot. There is no automatic situation. So what are we to pass? Well, first of all, we've got to pass on our theology. We've got to pass on, on our theology of understanding that God, the God of the universe, is the God of redemption for every single person. Psalm 115 once says, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory because of your love and faithfulness. We not only have to pass on our theology, but also our ecclesiology. The word ecclesiology comes from the word ecclesia, and ecclesia is the Greek word where we get our word church. The New Testament, every time the word church is mentioned, it's the Greek word ecclesia. And ecclesia is, is defined as a group of people being called out on mission, redeemed by Jesus Christ with the purpose to see other lives transformed through him. So not only do we need to pass on our theology, but also our ecclesiology. 
But not only do we need to pass off those two things, we also need to pass our eschatology along as well. Eschatology is a word that has to do in study of what, how the, the end of times is going to happen, how the end will take place. Now, we can get into an argument that will never end about pre-trib and mid-trib and amillennialism and all these different things, and that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the simplicity of the afterlife and how this life on this earth, we have a decision to make where each of us will spend our eternity. We have to pass these things on. Otherwise, we will lose the baton. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, And it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. There is no autopilot in the 20-meter zone. The second reason why the U.S. teams didn't win gold, I found, was they failed to run in their own lane. They failed to run in their own lane. It's important in relay races to run in your own lane, to hold the baton in such a way that when you're passing it to the person behind you, if the person behind you and, fr and, and the person in front of them does not run in the right, correct lane, in the right spot, you will fail to pass the baton. This happened in one of the um, Olympic relay teams, and I believe this happened for Israel. If you look at verse 13, it says that they forsook him, they forsook God, and they served other gods. And, and, and what happens is the culture crowds out their relationship with God and they give in, they acquiesce. And as they give in, they begin to wander out of their lane. And, and because of that, they not only wander out of their lane in their own life, but they also are not able to pass the baton to the next generation. And when this happens, I love how one author says it best. He says, we choose between the God who saves and the gods that enslaves. Now, I, you're thinking, that doesn't, I don't understand that. Well, people give themselves to idols all the time. You're like, well, I don't have a little golden Buddha in my house. Well, that's not what I'm talking about, although there could be that. What I'm talking about is that we give ourselves to money. We make, God, we make money our God. We think that money's going to bring us happiness and fame and success. And if we have this one, much in our 401k and this is how much we bring home every month and, and we have this much in savings and we drive this kind of car and we have to do this kind of thing and da, da 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 down the road, then we'll have happiness, success, control of our life. But what we end up paying for it is, number one, we end up paying sometimes our family. Number two, our physical health. Number three, our soul. It's more like slavery to me than, than freedom. Let's think about video games for a second. Video games. I just watched Ready Player One, a movie on Friday with my wife, and it's a good movie. But <clears throat> what I, I thought so interesting was this video game that transcends people into a different reality, and they find community in this reality. People that don't feel at place on this earth, they kind of create their own world. And so you make that your God, and you, you're like, I'm going to accomplish this specific thing, and when I accomplish that specific thing, then I'm going to feel like I'm happy, and I'm going to feel like I can control things, and all these things. But in essence, what it does is it locks you into this never-ending cycle of trying to accomplish the next thing in the video game or a different video game. It sounds a lot more like slavery to me as opposed to freedom. Let's think about technology for a second. Technology, you have all these phones, <clears throat> you have all these tablets, you have all these things that are supposed to make our life a lot less complex and a lot more simple and efficient. But yet, in essence, it's created just diversion and actually separated us a lot more like slavery. But then on the other hand, <clears throat> excuse me, you have Israel and the God that is seeking after them and he's jealous for them and righteous. And we think, oh, it's not right for God to be jealous. But Dale 
Ralph David, he writes in his book, Degeneration, Generation, that God's jealousy is seen as a bad thing, but in, in, in essence, actually, jealousy is a good thing because it, it shows that he loves us. He's jealous for our affection, our attention. It'd be like this. You're, you're a parent and you have a child and they don't want anything to do with you. Well, you're jealous for them because you love them. You want the best for them. You've, you know, it's your responsibility to watch after them. In the same way, that's the way God looks at us. And Jesus called God, Abba, Father, because he's our greatest heavenly father. That no matter what you see or have seen in a father on this earth, he just completely blows those other father images away. He loves you unconditionally. He pursues you. He sheds his grace towards you and even sacrificed in the greatest way for you. I shared this in the earlier service. I love a lot of people in this room. I'm really good friends with some of these people in this room. And you know what? If there was a situation where I had to give my life for some of the people in this room, I might do it. But for me to give my daughter for you, no way. No offense, but no way. And neither would you. But God gave his only son because of his love for us. I choose the God who saves, not the God who enslaves. And I think the message is so clear here. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Committed to running in your lane so that you can pass the baton to the next generation. And for the next generation to stay in your lane so that you can receive the baton as well. Two quick things in order to help you stay committed to your lane. Number one, read scripture and pray to God. Just open up the Bible and begin to read. You're like, well, I don't know where to start. We have a Bible reading plan at Graceland. You can go to our website. You can get an email every single day. Start reading through scripture. Then just tell God, God, would you show me? Would you speak to me? Would you begin to illuminate what you want me to do in and through my life, through your word? Begin to pray to God. Number two, be committed to Christian community. Be committed to a group in the life of our church. Why? Because I'll show me your friends and I'll show you your future every single time. Now, some of you are like, well, I'm not really that religious. Okay, so when you start talking about running in some religious lane, that's not me. But I would argue back, you are religious. You're just religious about something else. It's not a question if you're running in a lane. It's what lane are you running in? And the question I have for you is, will you run in the lane? Will you run in the lane, honestly, that truly satisfies your soul? So the first thing we saw was you can't take for granted the 20-meter zone. There's no autopilot. The second thing we saw was you've got to run in your lane. And the third thing that I found about the U.S. Olympic teams is this, that mentoring was under-prioritized. That mentoring was under-prioritized. It was reported that the most famous runner on the 1996 relay team, if I shared his name, you would all know who I'm talking about. It was reported he never went to one practice. He never listened to the coaches, and he really didn't like his teammates very much either. And it fractured the team, and there was a lot of bad chemistry among the team, and that's why they didn't win. There was a lack of mentoring on both sides of the coin. There was a lack of humility on his end to be mentored, and then the coaches didn't do a very good job of pursuing him either. And I see this in our culture all the time, just as like we saw it in Israel. In Israel's case, the, 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 uh, the surviving witnesses of Joshua, they didn't pursue mentoring the next generation. And then the same about the next generation, there was no humility and, and willingness to be actually mentored by the surviving witnesses. It's a both and. In our culture today, the younger generation, and I was guilty of this, and 
and I had, I've had to repent of this multiple times, is I looked at the older generation and I thought, man, they don't have a clue. When I'm that age, I'm going to show them what's up. They're a bunch of hypocrites. They say one thing and they do another. They say these things and they parent this way and they're businessmen and women, da 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 When my generation gets there, we'll figure it out. Well, my generation has gotten there. I think we just screwed it up further. And I've had to take a lot more humble of approach to my life because I find myself saying the same things to my kids that my parents said to me. Oh, my goodness. And I think in our culture, the next generation has become so judgmental. I mean, you do one thing wrong in our culture today and boom, take their head off, right? But here's the thing. Every single one of the next generation that is so judgmental right now, guess what? In a year or two years or five years or 10 years, they're going to do something stupid because they're not perfect. And when they do it, what do you think is going to happen to them? I think in our culture today, we need to be a lot more graceful. I think in our culture today, we got to be a lot more humble. We need to approach people with a lot more love and a lot less judgmental accusations. And this mentoring culture is what we're missing. And Jesus, he modeled this in and through our lives. In the life of the disciples, he would pour into those 12 men. He would model it for them. That is why we have the doctrine of the incarnation. There's so many ways the infinite God, he could have revealed himself to us, but what did he do? He, he wrapped himself in the form of a man. And that man demonstrated what God would look like and modeled it for us on this earth to those men. Philip asked Jesus, he said, show us the father. And Jesus replied, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. The apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. One of my mentors once said this to me. He said, Ray, God always wraps his truth in a person. And the question is, are we wrapping God's truth in our life to others? Are we mentoring in that way? We need mentors to step up of all ages, young, middle-aged, and old. We need men and women. Why? Because you've had mentors. You would not be where you are today in positive ways because you, you, you've had those mentors in your life. Would you prioritize your life around mentoring? We need you to step up. Would you be a mentor in the schoolroom? Would you be a mentor in the boardroom? Would you be a, a mentor in the church room? Would you be, most importantly, a mentor in the living room? Michael Medved, a New York Post film critic, he says, by the age of six, listen to this, the average American child will have spent more time watching a screen than that child will have spent an entire lifetime talking to his own father. I had to reread that when I read that. Someone else is raising our children, and time, tick, 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 is ticking away. We have got to double down on mentoring. As a way of illustration, I have these three jars, and you've been wondering what these are the entire time. Well, I'm about to tell you. The KG stands for kindergarten, the fourth stands for fourth grade, and the 11 stands for 11th grade. And in each specific jar is a number of marbles, and these marbles indicate how many weekends a parent or a mentor or a grandparent has with a child. In kindergarten, there's 700, and I believe 778 glass marbles in this jar. And that represents one that many weekends before that child turns 18 and leaves the house. And so every single weekend, one marble is taken out of the jar. This jar 
fourth grade, there's, let me check here. I wrote it down. There is 468 marbles in fourth grade. There's 400 in some marble in some weekends left for a child before they're going to go off and your last marble is going to be gone. And then in 11th grade, there's 104 marbles here until you give your last marble away and you drop them off at college or they move out into an apartment or they go do what they're going to do. Time is ticking and mentors, we have got to step up to the plate. We saw this in the Olympic team. We saw this in the life of Israel. And I want you to double down on this. This is why I want you to learn this one phrase real quickly. Ready? Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. I didn't invent that, but I love the principle. Say that with me. Ready? Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one child. Do for one student. Do for one individual in your organization. Do for one person what you wish everyone could get the chance to do. We need mentors. So you're like, okay, I want to mentor Ray, but I don't know anything. to do. I don't know what to do. I want to give you a list real quickly. Here's what a mentor does. A mentor loves God. Deuteronomy 6.6, 6, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. It's never too late to begin loving God and mentoring someone else. Number two, a mentor explains the gospel. Number three, a mentor equips rather than entertains. Number four, a mentor gives personal testimony. Number five, a, a mentor coaches. Number six, a mentor sounds is a sounding board. Number seven, a mentor is someone to turn to. Number eight, a mentor devises plans with the individual. Let me repeat that again. A mentor, they love God. Number two, a mentor explains the gospel. Number three, a mentor equips rather than entertains. Number four, a mentor gives personal testimony. Number five, a mentor coaches. Number six, a mentor is a sounding board. Number seven, a mentor is someone to turn to. And number eight, a mentor helps devise plans. You're like, I don't know if I can do that. Well, let me tell you, just circle one, just circle two of those and just get really good at a couple of those. I know everyone in this room could do that. And then know this, that the God of the universe, if you have a relationship with him, is indwelling you and giving you the abilities in order to mentor. Don't doubt yourself. Just lean back on God and he's going to give you what you need and you move forward because we desperately don't need to lose sight of this. Let me close with this. There was this rich oil baron in Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas, right? And he would have this 4th of July party every single year, a big barbecue, and he'd invite thousands of people to this barbecue. And everyone would look forward to it because they always look forward to some of the things he was adding to his property. And this oil baron, this one particular year, decided, I'm going to build the biggest swimming pool I've ever seen. So he builds the pool in the great state of Texas, the, the shape of the great state of Texas. And he also creates a deep end that's 40 feet deep and it's real long and <clears throat> there's thousands and thousands of gallons of water, of sea, water, sea salt water in this pool. And so the, the party happens and they're all having a good time at the party, but they're all looking forward to the end of the party. Because at the end of the party, the oil baron always does some sensational, sensational act. Well, this year it topped the cake. He calls them all around the pool. In, in, in a microphone, he says, ladies and gentlemen, in this pool, I've put sea snakes and water moccasins and alligators and a few sharks and all kinds of piranhas and barracudas in this pool. And if one of you is willing to swim from one end of the pool to the other end of the pool, I'll give you one of three things. I'll give you all that you see, the house, the pool, everything. Beautiful spread. 
Or number two, I'll give you a thousand ranch acres. Or number three, I'll give you the hand of my daughter if she's willing to marry you. And right then, bam, a guy hit the water and he's swimming across the water and he is darting across and everyone turns their head and looks at and starts cheering the guy on as he makes it all the way to the other end of the pool. He gets out of the water and he's got all these nips and he's bleeding. He's got these snake bites all over the place and he's barely able to stand up and doctors rush to his side and begin to give him medicine in his bloodstream so the poison doesn't kill him. And as he begins to regain strength, the old baron walks up and says, man, you are some guy. So what do you want? Do you want the, my estate? And the man says, no, sir. He says, okay, okay. You want the thousand acres of my ranch land. It's a beautiful spot. And the man says, no, sir. He says, oh, okay. You want, you want the hand of my, my daughter because then you're going to get everything anyway. You're smart. And the man says, no, sir. Well, Baron says, well, then what do you want? The man says, I just want the name of the man who pushed me in the pool. <laughs> and the reason why I tell you that is because the next generation has been pushed in a pool and they're being attacked by all kinds of different things, things clawing at them, trying to take them down. And it's our job to keep them swimming and to keep them moving forward. Let's pass the baton.